Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Matt Moore of the Action Network, and as you would expect, we have a conversation that is on tiers, and really great criteria from Matt for this time. We talk about which teams are most and least optimized relative to their star players, so that includes coaches, includes roster makeup, and it was such a fascinating discussion. We usually try to target an hour or so for these, but we ended up going almost an hour 20. Lots of great stuff in here, and the episode is also brought to you by a new sponsor that is prize picks download the prize picks app today and use the code clns for a first deposit match up to a hundred dollars thank you so much for coming on hey thanks for having me always love doing it as often uh you pick the criteria i believe we've done this one before but it's been a while and after the trade deadline is a really good time to evaluate things like fit and so I'll let you describe the criteria. Yeah, so we're doing optimization again. Who optimizes both their star players through roster building and rosters through coaching the most and the least? So the idea here is we want to get a sense for um, with what you have, how much do you make of it? And some of this is um, an interesting kind of there's so many ways to look at it from a coaching and from a uh, roster building standpoint where, OK, if you have a superstar, are you putting the right guys around him? And if you uh, have the the players, is your coaching making the most of it or are there obvious things that are holding them back? And so I think there's a, a pretty good way to evaluate these teams based off of that. Um, and this is nice because it doesn't necessarily have to be correspondent with title contention or with uh, even wins and losses. It's more of, hey, you could be a bad team, and I have some bad teams pretty high uh, if I feel like, no, 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 like they're making the, they're doing the most with what they got and they'll, you know, they'll figure it out long term versus I have some teams which are pretty good um, in the middle and bottom that are, you know, look, they've, they've got some talent there, but they're not nearly doing enough with them, I think, to uh, to make the most out of it. They are not making hay while the sun is high. It's a fun criteria to work through because you kind of think about teams in a in a different way. And, you know, so generally for me, I'll say the rule I used was the, a team's two best players. And of course, those are not equal when you compare different teams. The Philadelphia 76ers, two best players are not the same level of quality as the Washington Wizards or Portland Trailblazers, two best players. The other thing I'll mention is that because this is more of a thought experiment, I both used primarily the full strength version of teams. So there are a number of teams, the Blazers being one of them, who just haven't really been healthy this year. I I used what I expected to be their stuff. And then also I more fully incorporated their rosters post-deadline. So for example, the Indiana Pacers look significantly different now than they did before they made the Siaka move and they made the healed move. So I'm evaluating the roster as it stands now, even if there were issues or non-issues before yeah i think that's the way to go about it right it's like you can't really say like uh you can, it can't be a failing of now you know i, I kind of on the other side i i went a little bit differently at least in terms of injuries where to me you do have to have some redundancy now like you just need to be able to duplicate things because guys are going to miss time um a team that i have very low they're in the second to bottom tier is the memphis grizzlies and the reason is because um jaw going out wasn't why the bottom the the bottom fell out it really wasn't they would have been fine but when steven adams got hurt that's what fell out and then that was the entire thing and they knew coming into the year they weren't going to have brandon clark 
And so they went into camp and they didn't have another center and then they want and then you know they come off horribly and the season's over before it begins and they have to like sign Bismack Biombo to try and get back on the rails and you know them being having a rough time because Marcus Smart was out and then Desmond Bain okay like you had some redundancy there and you missed both guys on top of Jaw first being suspended and then injured but when I look at the overall roster construction I think that there were some real issues and it's funny because I do think it, it kind of shows you how good the league is right now that despite all of the various uh, kvetching from media and fans about the state of the game and the state of the league et cetera et cetera and the concerns over the media rights deal. I have 15 teams, Danny, in my top two tiers. I have very wow. is a this is a I only have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, only eight teams in my bottom two out of a five tier scale. So um, I really think that we're in a pretty good spot as far as teams making the most of what they've got. I have a little bit more in the middle. My tier four. So I have six. My tier four is a little bit thicker. But generally, I, I think that the, the margins between some of these, like, I, for example, I have my tier three, like half of them I have in it like could be tier two so drawing some of these lines is a little bit complicated so might as well start at the top who is in your tier one the denver nuggets Mm -hmm. the new york knicks Mm. the indiana pacers the oklahoma city thunder the philadelphia 76ers and the utah jazz my top tier is only two teams both of which are in your top tier and that's for me the thunder and the nuggets so probably in a way like our one your one and my one and two are pretty comparable there are a few other a few small differences and for me i had the thunder and the nuggets separate from everyone else because i just think they're a little bit superlative in this in this specific respect and yeah. i want to start with the thunder because so we're i mean Shea gives alexander is absolutely one of their best players and we can we you know there can be disagreements on who the second best player in the thunder is but i use Shea as the primary frame and they put him in such a great position to succeed he is a wonderful driver he gets to play with a spaced four pretty much all the time and that doesn't make him a worse player it just put, puts him in a better position to succeed same with jalen williams and i I mean, and to be able to do that without sacrificing your defensive quality other than rebounding is pretty incredible. And also they have really good coaching that Mark Dagnall understands what this team can and cannot do and doesn't put his players in a position that is untenable. Yeah, I love so much of what OKC does because it does feel like they just maximize everything around the edges. Like they just they get a little bit of an edge in so many respects and I think there's maybe like a, a couple of quibbles where I wouldn't put any of these teams as perfect. Um, and maybe that's like what's kind of interesting is I have 15 teams at the top, but nobody I would feel like is perfect. I think with OKC, it's like, look, you know, could, could they use a veteran big? You know, picked up Mike Muscala today, but like, could they use a veteran big? Sure. Like it would it would probably have won them maybe a, a few more games when they're already going to win close to, you know, between 55 and 60. Um would finding a quicker replacement for Giddy have been probably a smart move? Maybe. But then you look at just like everything that they do and the development curve of, you know, they took Jalen Williams and they did, I think, something a little bit different from what has been kind of the Kawhi model, which is, hey, let's put a guy in a box and this is what he's going to be. And then as he after he's mastered that, we'll slowly kind of layer up stuff. And with J-Dub, they've instead kind of been like, hey, you're going to get to do like a lot of things. And so just kind of find what works for you and experiment. And then like we'll lean into those tendencies as it kind of goes along. Um, I think, you know, adding Chet was perfect in terms of what he brings to the table from a shot blocking perspective. Uh, still could use an, another another big, but they've got time to kind of figure that out. Um, Isaiah, Joe, Wiggins, like the number of guys that they have where you're just like, that guy just really fits with them. You're never 
like, oh, this is a clunky lineup. You're just almost never like that. And then fundamentally, I think a, a lot of it is it's very easy, I think, to try and build um, – systems that are maybe more complex than they need to be. And one of the things I really appreciate about OKC is how simple they are, where they're just like, yeah, no, Shay's just going to hunt down whoever your weakest target is, and he's going to put you in hell. And that's that's what we do. And then we have shooters and spacers, and, and J-Dub can um, add some some movement around that because we do have keep open passing lanes. The coaching is phenomenal. The roster development has been great. The the you know the drafting has been uh, has been terrific. But it, in large part, what's funny about OKC, I think, is that it's still such an unfinished product from the perspective of Presti has still been so reticent to uh, really add anything on. He's just let this thing develop in its own petri dish, and it's become one of the best teams in the league. But also, you know, it's a testament to to Mark Dagonalt's coaching, coaching that he's been able to instill so many things to make this work despite such a young, inexperienced roster. For sure. And it is incredibly striking. So the other team that I had in my tier one was Denver. And Denver, part of the reasons, I mean, I don't rate within a tier that I have that Denver just like technically behind on the list is that some of what their fit stuff is, is that Jokic is so good at what he does that they go the other direction. Like, you know, Jokic can play with more limited offensive players, and that's a part of what makes them so capable and at times dangerous defensively is that Aaron Gordon, Contavious Caldwell-Pope can be in your starting lineup and your offense can still be as dynamic as the Nuggets have been. So some of that credit goes to Jokic, but that's also understanding this is the base that you're beginning with. How do we build the best possible team around it? And I love the decision that I would say mostly Calvin Booth, though Connolly, of course, deserves some credit for it has done around Jokic on the idea of like, you have these defenders who can do other things well. And then, I mean, they've tried to develop their other players to become better defenders. They, their bench, their, their off, everything when Jokic is off the floor is absolutely terrible. But since we're doing more of a star player lens, I don't really care about that too much. The evolution of, uh, I think their approach is really fascinating where Tim Conley back in, you know, 19 ish, you know, it was really kind of focused on, I've got to get secondary ball handlers. I've got to create as much ball handling around as possible so that, you know, if they do double Jokic, not only can they shoot, but they can also kind of create. And then he translated that over time. Jeremy Grant was kind of the first guy that he went and got where it was, hey, maybe not. Like, maybe, maybe we don't need that. Like, maybe what we do need is just athleticism. And it's funny because early in his career, Jokic and Kenneth Fareed played so great together. And Fareed was a guy that flamed out of the league uh, because of his limitations. But he and Yoke were great together, which was always kind of like a weird fit of this very cerebral player and this pure athleticism guy. And uh, Adam Morris, who I do Locked on Nuggets with, like would comment on this about how if you put these super athletic guys that just understand timing next to Jokic y- – Jokic can optimize them in a way that almost nobody else can, and they've been able to do that. Like a lot of credit needs to be for Aaron Gordon for his willingness to do what he's done. But then Denver, you know, really pivoted and was like, we're going to be big. Like we're just going to have size everywhere, and that way you're never going to really be able to get a one-on-one tactical advantage because of how we defend and because of how we approach things. And we're going to have so much length and size and the ability to cut or shoot, and we're going to have maybe less dynamicism with the other guys outside of Jamal Murray in the two-man game, but we're going to be able to do so much within the uh, range of things that we have and so well that it's going to be really tough to stop. You know, much like OKC, I still think that this roster is – there's still like – 
there are still structural flaws, right? Where, especially if you talk about redundancy, um, one of the reasons why in the MVP conversations I really refuse to use on-off numbers <laughs> is entirely because I'm like, I am not going to credit Nikola Jokic because Calvin Booth refuses to sign a veteran center or go trade for one that can re- replicate anything of what Joker does. Like, the fall-off is just too great, and they kind of accept that. They're basically in their mode of like, yeah, no, if Joker's not available, we're not going to win. And that's just like, we're willing to accept that. Um, I I want to throw one one quick question at you because you know the Nuggets so well. What, if anything, do you read into how terrible the Nuggets have been with Jamal Murray on and Jokic off? Like, it's not only their net rating is bad, like their defense is bad in those minutes. It's not a big surprise. But their offense is abysmal in those minutes. Is that personnel? Is that a a specific shortcoming of Jamal Murray combination of the two? It is my belief that this is actually directly related to Jokic. If every player is optimized around Nikola and every player is primed to play around Nikola and understand those triggers and then you, re- you he comes off the floor and there is literally no one that can do anything close to what he does – Jamal Murray has never played with another center. He's played a little bit with a little bit with Mason Plumley, but honestly, in the lineups when Mason Plumley was around, Monte Morris would run pick and roll with Jamal off ball. So mm-hmm. Jamal never really learned to play like traditional dive pick and roll with a big because that's not what Joker does. And so he's only ever been able to play Jokic ball. And so they really struggle when Jokic is not on the floor because all of those players are essentially primed to do something which they cannot do without that missing component. If you replace DeAndre Jordan with Kelly Olynyk, those bench units look entirely different because Olynyk is not Nikola Jokic because no one is. But Olynyk can act as a facsimile, as a C-grade average Costco version of Nikola Jokic, and those lineups would look a lot better. Um, instead, Murray winds up isolating a lot because he simply hasn't played a lot of pick and roll. They've done it more this season where if, when Jamal does run with DeAndre Jordan, they've started to generate a little bit of action and be able to have some dynamicism. Bear in mind, Jamal's never really had to throw a lob. What are you going to throw a lob? That's a Jokic great for? point. So, I mean, every once in a while to Aaron Gordon, but otherwise. Yeah, and and so really there's a, the, the, that's a large part of those mechanisms. And I think the other thing with Denver is look, they've added these young guys and they've, they've Peyton Watson, Christian Brown, built upon the premise of, hey, we're going to have a lot of athleticism and defensive prowess, and they're just going to be like very solid guys. But I do think that there's maybe some missing components there that some veterans could have probably helped fill in, and they chose not to go that route, in part because they want it sustainable, so they're not in the Bucks habit of – having to constantly deplete all of their assets just to stay above water. Mm-hmm. But I do think uh, in general that they've done a, a magnificent job handling that. Let's go through some of the other teams that you have in tier one, almost all of which I have in my tier two. Yeah. So I think the Knicks, when I look at the Knicks, a lot of it is um, the fully healthy version of them. We actually haven't been able to see because it's Mitchell Robinson next to OG and Anobi with Jalen Brunson. And to me, the the thing that makes that OG pickup so sneaky good is what they will look like when they have that full roster available. When you can run Mitchell Robinson in pick and roll with a big screener for Jalen Brunson to get him downhill and a lob threat and OG Anobi as a perimeter weapon to be able to capitalize. You know, I think – um, Julius Randle still sticks out a little bit like a sore thumb. Yeah. But he, for he, what he's he's been, a part of why I have this tier two, not tier one, yeah. but it's it's totally worthy. Yeah, and like a lot of that is I don't know that they could really move on, right? And so, but when I look at the Knicks and like what they're capable of, like they've flirted with being a top 10 offense defense team all year. And when they're healthy, I have zero doubt that they are. Like I think this team is 
an Eastern Conference contender if they get Mitchell Robinson back healthy on top of OG Ananobi. I just think that they that Brunson is so singularly great, especially in playoff environments. I think their ceiling is very high. I like the way that they've added wings like Josh Hart and Dante DiVincenzo and Bogdanovich, and, and they've really kind of filled out this roster. I think Tibbs, Tibbs is very good about getting the most out of guys in the regular season. He's not as good at solving problems in the playoffs, but I have a hard time. When I look at a roster anchored by Jalen Brunson, who is awesome, but is also just like he's not Giannis Jokic that level, even Kawhi level, and like Jalen's numbers are comparable to Kawhi's this year, which is a testament to both how Jalen has played and also like what they've done with him. I have a hard time of seeing any way really that you can look at the Knicks and go, man, they're really not getting enough outside of you know not finding a trade partner for Julius Randle, which I think is difficult. It is difficult. And also, the getting OG and then Dante DiVincenzo going to the starting lineup, it makes some of Randall's flaws more manageable. And so, and there are times that they need a second player who can do a little bit. And now that they have better spacing, I think that will work out a little bit better. Could they, you know, if they could find a unicorn five as a part of the rotation, do some of that? Sure. But that, that doesn't usually happen. You had the Pacers. I. I do really enjoy the Pacers fit now. I was a little bit more apoplectic too strong when they traded Buddy Heald just because I thought he brought them something that they that they now don't have. But, I mean, I was never questioning the fit of Siakam into this group. He does really well. The Siakam-Turner-Halliburton trio makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. And to his immense credit, I don't know if Aaron Smith is going to be this guy as a shooter forever, but he has established himself as another good fit around this core. Yeah, I think my my reasoning for putting Indiana here is, you know, um, Heald was more of a free agency, got to get something for, you know, before he's gone. This is already going to happen um, situation, so I, I don't dock him too much for it. What I think I love about the Pacers is they got Halliburton, recognized what he was capable of. And Carlisle and the front office said, let's push this as far as we can get it, and then and then we'll work backwards on the stuff that we're not good at. So they start off this season, and they have the number one offensive rating, and they're putting up these ridiculous numbers and ridiculous pace games, and it's all offense all the time. And then Carlisle starts pulling back on the reins and being like, guys, we've got to defend. We've got to defend. And it would be very easy for a coach – like Carlisle to basically Don Nelson it and be like, nope, we're just going to like try and beat you with offense because that's who we are. But instead, Carlisle kept working at them and kept working at them. And even before the Siakam trade, you started to see a little bit of improvement. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be like a good defensive team, but they can move in the right direction. And so they did so without dropping off offensively at any sort of significant level. And that real nuance in how Carlisle has managed this team, I think is part of why I have them there on top of making the move to get Siakam and basically being like, that's a guy for our organization in this city that can really be the guy that fills in the gaps that, that completes a lot of what we're missing. And to make the trade that they did, a lot of franchises are scared of that because they're scared of either not getting him back in free agency. They're scared of it not working out and then being stuck with this massive swing that you took and missed on. And instead, those decisions to me, like that's an entirely indicative of a team that I think has done the most that it can to put this roster in a position where it can be successful. And then they can work on, okay, maybe we got to get more defenders. Maybe we've got just got internal improvement. Those things later to really shore this thing into a contender for a couple of years down the line. 
love all that. One small thing I'll add is that they did give up, you know, three picks in the Siakam yep. trade, but two of them were this year. And so they're the Pacers are not out too much going to the future. So if they need to change course, probably more in minor degrees rather than major degrees, they can do that. They're, they're in position. That's not as much in, in this analysis. Where else in the first year do you think merits some more discussion? Um, Jazz, I'll hit real quick. Just look, that that roster is just not very good. It's inexperienced. Um, It's got a bunch of defensive holes on it, so I don't blame them. And Will Hardy just finds ways really to, I think, maximize what they're capable of. Like a lot of this is the Jazz are not great. I also don't look at the Jazz and go, they should be better. I don't – like I go, wow, they're, the fact that they're even where they are is a testament to how the roster fits together, what they've accomplished, and how they're coached. And I, I- – yeah, I first of all, I wholeheartedly agree with all that. Um, I mean, trading some money Fontecchio so you don't have a starting caliber small forward isn't great. And I, I I think of that as a masterful coaching job, but a flawed roster, not only in terms of overall talent, but in terms of fitting talent. Now, there were times where it looked better, but they've traded some dudes away. The other thing, we haven't seen it a ton just because of the nature of some of the teams he's played on. I would love to see Lowry Markkinen with a little bit more of a dynamic traditional creator. And it may happen. It may not. We don't know where Danny Ainge is going from this point. So I actually have the Jazz a lot lower. I have them in my tier five of six. But I agree with you on the Hardy point. If I was, I, I think that they, you know, Will Hardy has done an excellent job and I feel a lot of sympathy for him because they... Basically, Nate refers to this as like alchemy. And so like they had this alchemy and then they pulled some of the ingredients and all of a sudden it doesn't work anymore. And it's like, that sucks. Like, I, I, that's, you know, there's, nothing, there's nothing that Will the, Hardy did wrong. The trades, I think, I think are a reason for me to actually drop them down to tier three. And mm-hmm. it's a good point by you in that I can't really say that they've optimized things when they've constantly made moves to kind of go the other direction. Now, like I'm aware of conversations that they've had with teams trying to actively make big swings that would have put them into – hey, this team's really dangerous mode. Like They tried really hard on multiple fronts to add key guys, but they also weren't able to pull those off. And you don't get credit for wanting to do things. You get credit for doing things. So I'm going to drop them down actually to Tier 3 because as much as I may love Will Hardy, I think you're right that the roster is maybe more compromised than I give it credit for after the trades that they've done. I am curious, though, about your thoughts on Philadelphia and where they fit as far as being optimized. I have them Tier 2. And I think that thinking again, as I focused on the full strength iterations of this team, one of the strengths that Philadelphia has, which is a consideration, it's kind of within and not within the criteria, is that their star players mesh together really well. And I think that counts. I think it just, you don't just say Maxi and Embiid are in one box and it's how everyone, you know, melds around them. Maxi's ability to play on ball, and I mean, the, the, before he got hurt, the max, before he changed the sample, the Maxi on and beat off minutes were surprisingly potent. There were some great fourth quarter stretches in, in particular. And now it's different because now the whole team is without Joel and beat all the time. And Embiid having somebody who can shoot, who can, you know, do some of the some of the like connective tissue stuff offensively, that works well. I mean, also Nick Nurse is one hell of a coach. This yeah. was been, I mean, Joel Embiid's best defensive season. And I think it's been, you know, if not his best offensive season, pretty dang close. And so Embiid, it's hard to argue that when they were together, that Embiid was anything other than the most maximized he's been in his entire career. Yeah, and for me, I I, I just kind of look at – I don't even know that it was intentional. I think Maury just got as much as he could in the Harden trade. But the Batumans were outrageous Oof. when Embiid was healthy. And you know they did two things 
they did a few things, I think, to optimize Embiid. And the first part of that is like the roster and adding more versatility and having a bunch of wings and a bunch of guards and a bunch of guys that could all circle around him while also being able to play on the interior. And doing so while giving up P.J. Tucker was a ballsy move that really paid off, and I think that Maury deserves a lot of credit for that. The second thing is just Nick Nurse, is that hiring Nurse as the guy and just being like, I'm just going to get the best tactician because I don't need to worry about – I don't need to rebuild the culture. I don't need to have guys feeling good. Like we, This team needs to win a title, and what's my most direct path? And it's I need the biggest coaching edge matchup by matchup in the playoffs that I can find. And the way that Nurse improved the triggers and mechanisms for Embiid passing – Ooh. I think are huge. And like Joel deserves a, a huge amount of credit for that too. Cause like they could coach him all they want and provide these triggers. And some guys just can't make those reads. And his passing was the best it's ever been. His defense is the best it's ever been. And so for me, you know, I, I have an article kind of coming out about this on action network, just basically talking about like, look, I'm betting the Sixers to win the Eastern conference. Cause Ooh. I give them an outrageous number right now based off of the fact that I'm like, if MB comes back and they just scrape into the six, I'm getting a huge discount on a team that would have been plus 300 or lower to win the Eastern Conference that matches up. And I think they have a coaching advantage over any team in the Eastern Conference except Miami. And that puts them in a pretty good position to make a run. So, uh, Oh boy, would that be a weird series, by the way. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, it's a great point. And um, it, it's so funny that – so I ended up with the Sixers. You know, I have them kind of in stronger position in Tier 2. I have the Bucks here as well, but not because of coaching. I have them there just because they're – I still believe in the theory of their roster as much as the limitations around the margins frustrate me. Like, you know, not having a better point of attack defender in the rotation than Malik Beasley because all of the other guys they've tried have been so terrible offensively or terrible overall that they can't really do it. That's that's not fantastic. But Giannis and Willard, I still believe it can work. I think Lopez is a really good natural fit. And I may be giving too much blame to Adrian Griffin. Like the Bucks defense hasn't been ridiculous. As I recall, you're better at this kind of split stuff than I am usually. I like having it on the cuff, off the cuff. Is like I maybe I'm giving them, you know, too much retroactive blame to, to Griffin, but I still believe in the concept of this team. Yeah. Uh, I have them tier two, and a lot of the reason I have them tier two is that I can nitpick about process and what they've looked like at times, and they really have turned a corner here since the All-Star break, since they got a chance to actually install some stuff. Um, like, I don't believe that Bobby Portis is as bad as he's been this year. I just think he's had a rough year, which happens for veterans. Like, sometimes that, that occurs. And the overall kind of performance is still very high. And the team did go like, hey, let's get Giannis, Damian Lillard to create one of the most dynamic pick and roll combos in the league. And they've shifted Giannis's role. And it's been like he's been just as effective, if not more so. Like he's having an individually exceptional season. And some of the slippage that's occurring, like so much of it was Griffin. And I was on this early and just kind of like this is a real problem. And he deserves the, the bulk of the blame. But like there are there are areas where like Brooks just not as good as he was two years ago and Chris isn't as good as he was two years ago. And so we'll run into this a little bit later with another team in the same tier, which is the Golden State Warriors, where I'm just kind of like, I don't know that like there's there's only so much you can do when guys get old. And I don't know how much of that you can really, you know, 
pinpoint on a lack of optimization because you had to keep them. Like if they let Chris Milton go or they let Brooke Lopez go, that puts Giannis in a position where he's like, why? And maybe Dame doesn't want to come there because he's like, well, you're not as good because you got rid of Brooke Lopez. Having the gall to get rid of veterans that you've won a championship with is very difficult. And so I don't necessarily blame them for that. I don't feel awesome about the Bucks being in the second tier, um, and, and especially compared to teams like Boston, who they're right next to in my tier here on the second tier. Um, but I do kind of have to just kind of recognize, like, look, they still are going to finish with the top four seed. They're, they could get as high as two. This is going to be a title contender. They have maximized. The offense is amazing. I got to I got to kind of not nitpick them to death just because I think the, the, the scrutiny is so high given the trade and, and the presence of Giannis. Only other thing I'll mention is that Lillard having a weaker year than I expected. We'll see how yeah. this looks two, three, four months from now. But like that is also making some of this look worse. And even with that, they're still fifth in offense, including the glass overall in the season. Like that, that's really impressive. Plenty more to discuss, but first a message from PrizePix. PrizePix is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America, the easiest and most exciting way to play DFS. It's just you against the numbers. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. Football season may be over, but action on the hardwood is heating up. Whether it's tournament season or the fight for playoff home court in the NBA, there's no shortage of high-stakes basketball moments this time of year. Get in on the excitement with Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app. And one of my favorite things is that Prize Picks even offers injury insurance so that your injuries stay in play even if one of your players gets hurt. For basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player projection won't count against you and the rest of your entry stays live. And I also like that it's player specific, so you don't get into some of the vagaries. And so do you think that Stephen Curry has a really good matchup and you think that for point totals or if you think that Nikola Jokic, this is an assist game for him, you can pick that on prize picks and you can work with that. And you should definitely download the app and use the code CLNS for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, download the Prize Picks app today and use the code CLNS for that first deposit match up to $100. So check out Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. So yeah, we can go to Boston. I actually have Boston in tier three. Um, though I put the I put these, and really that's primarily about like offensive flow you know the idea that the celtics to me don't have that many great passers they are the most talented team in the league and i think joe missoula has done a reasonably good job with them they also benefit from their wings not getting hurt in the regular season which is nice but it's it's just this little thing that until the celtics i don't know if it's win a title but just like perform relative to their talent level in the postseason especially offensively especially in crunch time where i'm just like are they, you know, like, would they be better off? I, I don't even know. Like, they tried Kyrie. They tried Kemba. Both those things didn't work for complicated reasons. Um, would they be better off sort of in a weird way? Not saying this is perfect either with what the Clippers ended up doing, where it's like you have somebody else who can initiate some things and just make life a little easier on them. But their overall talent level is comically great. <sighs> They're so tough because of the success, right? Like, are we, you know, how much are we, that, that that's a large part with me, much like with the Bucs, where it's like, if I'm not going to nitpick the Bucs, how am I possibly going to nitpick the Celtics? Yeah. Best team in the league, one of the best teams in league history relative, yeah. you know, like plus 10.5, clean the glass net rating right now. Eight, eighth, eighth all-time SRS right now. Oof. Yeah, yeah. So um, win profile's great, no real concerns. I have the same kind of issues that you do. I think... 
I think the best way for me to kind of target this down is I actually don't think it's the roster because I think the Derek White edition was so great. And I think the, the Drew Holiday edition was so great. And you can't really take the ball out of Tatum's hands given how he's evolved and developed. And you can't blame them for giving the money to Jalen Brown. And adding Porzingis was huge. So I don't – the roster to me is great. But the coaching I still have a lot of concerns about. And one of the reasons is entirely because of it's – and I understand if, you're, if it's a Boston fan, they have to they're, – they're frustrated with these criticisms because it's like we're doing so well and that's a bad thing. And it's like no. But there is a part of me that has come to understand that when you optimize things for the regular season, you oftentimes do not have the vision for what it takes to win in the playoffs. And it's so much of it is like, look, their principles are great. Like when it works, it works so well. They're the most dominant team. It's just that I have so many questions about what happens if. What happens when this doesn't go well? Can you solve these types of issues? And so they have generated a a scheme and a style that works great until it doesn't. And then the whole thing melts into a puddle. And we've seen it consistently. And a lot of this is the way you solve that problem when things start to go wrong is you just hammer something. You go, we're going to get super simple. The Nuggets, when things are getting tough and hard and it's like, okay, we're getting solved a bit here, two-man game. We're just going to run two-man game down your throat. And we're just going to do it over and over and over again. And the Celtics don't do that. They They don't don't have a bread and butter. Yeah, they don't target mismatches. They don't punish decisions by the opponent of who's on the floor. They just kind of do their thing. And until they show that they can kind of get past these challenges by victimizing whatever the opponent decides to do, the easiest way of just being like, it's Porzingis pick and roll with Tatum. Like that's got to be the solution, but they don't go to it enough. And so that's why I have to keep them at number two is I do not have faith in them to just be able to skewer somebody at a weak point because there's so built upon their principles. It's a weird parallel at times with the Warriors. I've criticized Kerr for this over the years of like, they they do their thing instead of focusing on what an opponent can't do. And for the Celtics, like you can get over that with superlative individual talent. And you can also sometimes succumb and you sometimes you lose a weird game or a weird series because of that. And it's, it, it is a ch- kind of a challenge that you deal with. And in some ways, it actually is more nefarious on a really good team because it presents so rarely. Like the Celtics get stuck in these ruts less than basically every other team in the league. And thus they don't feel as much of the urgency. But like one of the elements that I've really honed in on over the years is like the general assumption you have to make is that if your goal is to win a championship, you're going to have to face at least three opponents that are both very good overall teams, but also have some unusual severities of strength. And it's, can you deal with that? So maybe it's like, oh, this is the best rebounding team in the league or the best transition team in the league, or they have like two unguardable wings or whatever. Like there are always going to be teams with these ridiculous things. And I've I've had this theory and I think Porzingis helps this more than most. And I don't know if Missoula does. I main thing does know that I've referred to it for a couple of years as like super team vulnerable, where it's like they're, they're set up to be the best team if you didn't if, if you didn't acknowledge that there were like that things that things could exceed like that you could get i mean well, obviously the KD warriors are extreme and everything like that but like there will always be some concoction of talent that will be dangerous for them yeah um my tier 2 in total is huge celtics bucks heat the nets the wolves the kings the warriors the rockets 
and the Mavericks after their trades. Where do you want to go there? I have the Mavericks at the top of my tier too, so I think they're a good place. And sort of in a weird way, like the Nuggets, I appreciate that Nico Harrison has been more aggressive about, okay, we have Luka Doncic. Okay, we have Kyrie Irving. We can go in a different direction with the rest of our team. They have, you know, Derek Lively is doing good work, albeit in limited minutes. And then they got Daniel Gafford. So like they have, if they want it, 48 minutes of capable rim protection and dive role man play, if they want. That's fantastic. They have defensive players who can make a difference both at the point of attack and kind of on wings, depending on how you want to deploy some of them. So their roster, it's not like they necessarily accentuate the strengths of Luka, though they have generally good spacing. It's that they understand what their stars do and then make sure they fill the gaps in the other ways. Yeah, I I feel like they're such a more complete team after the trades where the lively Luka games and minutes were so great. They just needed more of those. And so they got Gafford as very much like a redundancy of, okay, lively misses some games because he's young and he has, you know, he keeps having ankle issues. Gafford can step in in those games in the event that lively misses. And in the minutes where lively's not there, we still have a rim runner. And that's really great. The other's. There was some overestimation in terms of like, oh, he could be a rim protector. No, he can't. Like, no, that's not no, that's not Daniel Gafford. And so um, the defense is still like a huge problem. And that's one area where it's it's hard to be like, really, they optimized it when their defense is this bad. And I just kind of think like, look, if they're going to get to a place where they're going to be great defensively, it's going to take lively developing. It's going to take and it's honestly going to have to be one of those years where they just like buckle in and there's a coach that does it. And I just don't think that they have the coaching for that, which is why they're tier two. I This is one where the roster gets them, I think, very high and the coaching still kind of keeps them bound where I don't know that there's a lot that they are optimizing defensively under Jason Kidd. I don't know. There's some good stuff that they do offensively. It's just always around the margins of like the it has to be always in the margins of Luka Doncic isolation. Really good. Pick and roll. Really good. Like and that's okay because in in part you want to make sure that you have you don't want a situation where like Luka's I don't know that you can do the Jokic thing where you could just be like, we're going to build uh, great defenders that can't shoot around him. I don't know that that looks good. I don't know that that works. I don't know that that doesn't exhaust him even more and wear him to the bone. So I think they've gotten to a, a pretty good place. It's a pretty complete roster. Could it be better? Yeah. They're like they're probably at the end of Tier 2 for me. But I do think that they are um, – they're a more complete team than they've ever been with Kyrie, with Luka Doncic, for sure. Miami, I have in this tier as well. And part of that is the synergy between Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo and that building around them, you can do a lot of different things. Also, Eric Spolstra is an unbelievable coach, so, so he's done a lot. So they're kind of the reverse where it's like the meshing of the stars and the coaching staff are high, but then the... Re- surrounding roster like i still have some some issues there it's you know like they, they have good players but it's like are they getting everything they need from them so like i i got tempted a little bit to maybe put them in tier three but i think there's enough to keep them here yeah i think the roster is tough just because um you know they lose gabe and they lose Struess, and it's you don't know if they're any good like gabe's had a horrible season and been injured for most of it and wasn't good when he was on the floor and Struce has been really good for Cleveland. So, like, how do you evaluate, you know, the, the old, like, can you really sign guys after Miami lets them go thing? Uh, they went young, which I'm not – I don't know that that's necessarily the best kind of approach given the, their urgency to win a title. But they tried, right? Like, they wanted to trade for Damian Lillard. 
<laughs> they wanted to trade for Kevin Durant. Uh, they put themselves in a position to be a candidate for those guys. They just couldn't get it done. And I don't necessarily hold that against them. So the roster construction, I think, is about as good as you can expect. And the coaching is about as good as you can expect. So I think they're 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 in part limited by fate. And to be quite honest, to be brutally honest, I think they're in part limited by I personally am just like, look, Jimmy Butler is going to be awesome in the playoffs and he's going to have these games. and He's going to seem like the third best player in the world. But you got to have him for all the other time, too. And it's he he doesn't hold up over the course of a playoffs. He usually doesn't actually have really great back to back playoff games. It's why a lot of these series go to six and seven games and they have to dig in. And that just wears him and them out more. And I'm not saying that Jimmy's not worth building around. I think he's getting to the point there with his age where he's not worth building around. Um, but I do think it makes it very difficult. And that's why I think this summer is going to be fascinating with the extension talks that are on the table for him about what do you do here, uh, especially given how great Bam's been this year because he has been really great. But drafting Hawkes, big win. I think Jovic will be good in time. They still get great minutes out of everybody. Um, best coach in the league, number one. So I have a hard time putting them any lower. I can't put them one because of how many things I think in, in part just because it's like, look, if, you, if you're this good, why aren't you better? And if you're not this good, then OK, then then why is your salary so high? And that mix of things, I think, makes it tough to peg them. Um, I do want to kind of mention why I have the Nets here. And so this is largely just built off of I, like I, I'll just say this. I did not agree with the Jacques Vaughn fire. Uh, I did not agree with it. The whole thing on this team is what do you have? Like, what do you what do you have here? You have offensive rebounder bigs and you have wings that can shoot. You should shoot a lot of threes and offensive rebound. Well, that's what they do. I, I It's baffling to me that there was this idea that they weren't getting enough out of what they have when they're built around Mikhail Bridges to be a number one. And he's probably not. And like, that's what I think this year has kind of been is a realization of like Mikhail really is like, he's very much capable of, he was a number three in Phoenix and he's probably capable of being a number two, but he's not capable of being a number one. And that makes, puts them in a tough position long-term for sure. But also just like with where they were at, I don't see anything about how this team was put together and coached where I go, you left meat on the bone. You had very little. You had a mismatch of guys where everyone knew that they weren't really supposed to be there, that they just got stuck there, and they made the best of it, and that's what this team looks like. So for me, Miami is actually fairly optimized. It's interesting. We have the Nets really far apart, but I also think that our analysis is pretty close, where for me, the reason why they're low, I have them tier five of six, is because Mikhail Bridges is miscast is overstating like he's he's in he's not good enough to do what they need him to do but the reason part of the reason for that is just you know trying to save some money trying to retool trying to do everything else and so it's like also like bridges being you know taking as big a step back defensively as he has this year is a little bit notable though that happens with almost every player who takes on a big offensive workload like there have been so many of these guys over the years that like started as really good defenders or at least pretty good defenders and then got worse so for them it's it's that i mean this nets team i mean the whole ben simmons part of it where ben simmons basically has to play center because he can't do anything else offensively and then what what in the world do you do with him defensively like the whole thing is really complicated so i'm sympathetic i think that the and i agree with you i think jock vaughn did a reasonably good job there definitely appears to be some friction within players and the coach from that that has come out since his firing that I kind of kind of leave that on the table a little bit in terms of whether that was because they're mad about lack of success or something else. But 
we'll do that. But I, it's funny. We're, we're similar in our analysis, but we're kind of far apart there. I want to go to another team that I struggled. Maybe the team I struggled with the most, there are two, but we haven't talked about yet in terms of placement. But the one I want to talk about first, because I have them in a higher tier than the other, is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Mm. The First of all, there's the idea of like, you know, second best player and all that type of stuff where it's like there are parts of minnesota that work exceedingly well i mean they have the best defense they have wonderful defensive talent and their starting five makes complete sense like they they get into all this stuff but there's still elements with like the flow of their offense and i I think chris finch does it in a nice job i think he understands how this team ticks but i so but i'm just like i'm not over the moon in terms of like how it all meshes so like i was torn between tier two and tier three with them i'll make the tier two argument okay which is if you're gonna play two bigs this is kind of who you gotta be and if you're gonna be this type of team you're probably gonna have to take something off of the finesse factor they're not a fun team to watch offensively they're not a dynamic like look at all this cool stuff that they're running they're not going to get those types of twitter which, breakdowns. which is so funny because chris finch is their coach who had a rep yeah. for doing some of that stuff yeah he's and like i think he could build in more but i think that like okay what's the you know optimization what is the clearest path from a to b and it's we're going to be an extremely tough and professional defensive team that's going to grind you down we're going to have enough spacing and shooting and we're going to have enough athleticism on the interior uh on the wings to be able to be able to make plays um around this and we're going to play two bigs and we're just going to overwhelm you with size to a certain degree and so if that's your approach this is what that looks like like i don't have a way that you take two bigs and make this look better than it is as the number one seed in the western conference with the number one defense this is as good as i think it gets where and some of this honestly is like uh, there are a couple of key areas where this is why they can't be tier one is I'm actually a little bit lower on McDaniels than I was coming into the season. And it's in part because he'll have these sequences that are rough offensively with turnovers. And then I'm really keying in on this. If you go back and watch some of his biggest marquee matchups, he gets in foul trouble. And that's a real complicating factor for them because of what they need from him. But the bench is so good and it's so well balanced. And he, he he's Finch has figured out so many ways to keep the guys that need to be on the floor on the floor. And they have such good variety of skill sets that for me, it's like, Okay, they don't they have a bunch of different skill sets where they can all play within this structure. They're not necessarily st- skill sets that are going to be synergistic to make you that much better, which is again why they're not tier 1, but it's good enough to get this level of success. And I just kind of keep coming back to if Ant's going to have the ball this much and be and have this kind of role, and if you're going to have a two big combo of Towns and Gobert, I don't know how this looks better. Because I think if you went the other way and you were like, we're going to be more of a finesse team and we're going to try and, you know, pace and space and, you know, high pick and roll a ton and these types of things and take the ball out of Ant's hands maybe some even then, I think they're probably more dynamic offensively, but then they're way worse on defense. Yeah. And so you've convinced me tier two. I yeah, moved them up. That's what they look like to me. Um, I am curious. We, we kind of touched on them, but I am kind of curious on your thoughts on the Warriors. Because for me, this is just kind of a simple like I, the the criticisms of Kerr. Like, I'm always going to be in Kerr's camp, just because like for me, 
the difference between who they were in 2014 and 15 is that stark and the success that they've had and also the realizations in, in some parts of, you know, look, Curry does need to be kind of run a certain way as much as everybody seems to still want just the let's just run high pick and roll for stuff all the time. He's a little bit better when he's utilized through these more complex offensive schemes. I but agree. I agree. Me, conceptually, I yeah. think that the sorry, um, the the ratio, the ratio could shift a little bit more towards what people want. But I agree with you that it shouldn't be like all, you know, like as Marcus Thompson called it, the Novocaine of like the KD, the KD Steph pick and roll, which the Warriors basically never ran. Like, yeah, that yeah. would would have been nice if they did that more. They also, shock of shocks, don't have Kevin Durant anymore. Uh, so I have the Warriors in Tier 5, but it's not coaching. It's personnel. And something that, you know, I wish I could watch every other team as much as I watch the Warriors. And I, and I, I basically don't watch the road games unless it's like a big one that I need to watch, which there are fewer of those this year. The aging of Clay Thompson so that he can no longer be a point-of-attack defender has significantly hurt the Warriors' defense in a couple of different respects. One is they they do have other players who can do that. I mean, Gary Payton II, when healthy, can fill that role. But then you have to kind of run some of the offense, run some of the rotation differently due to his limitations. And something that I didn't fully appreciate until the last couple weeks is Clay Thompson, in part because of what he's done his entire career, he's one of the most comically limited help defenders just in terms of instincts because he's never had to do it before. So yeah. like, it was something I hadn't fully processed. But like when you take a guy from defending ones and you defend him to more of like threes and fours, then what you do when your guy doesn't have the ball is so dramatically different. And it's so funny because he plays with Draymond, who is like one of the best players in NBA history at this exact thing. But so you have that. And then the other part of it is I know he's been doing better recently, but generally speaking, Andrew Wiggins has been well below his standard. And so the theory of the offense is a lot harder to do, even though Steph has played, you know, he had a, a hot stretch at the beginning that had a cold stretch and then has a hot stretch as they've been going back in is I just don't think they're good enough. Like, I, yeah. it's it's that basic question of, like, I, I'm working on a thing about this, um, which is probably just going to be a part of Dunkton, but with Miami, of, like, do they still have their fastball? And for me, with Miami, the answer is mostly yes, and with the Warriors, it's mostly no. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of my, that's why I have them so high. It's why I have them tier two, is their problem isn't that there's meat on the bone. The problem is that the, <laughs> the meat is, is rancid and old. <laughs> like, they're... Yeah. It, it, there's just not the meat's not any good anymore, and I've said this in preseason because last year was the first time I saw it in that Lakers series. There does come a point when a team that has had so much success reaches for the magic that's always been there, and it's no longer there. And, and the ba- they're they're reaching in the bag. They know where that they know where that thing was, and then it's just not there anymore. It's just not there anymore, and you see that so often. That Nuggets game being a prime situation where you know that they were up, they got a good good first half from Clay. It was everything was clicking. They're at home. They're surging. This is going to be the signature win that launches them back into the picture. And then Denver was like, we're better, man. Like, we're just way better than you. And they really weren't able to, to compete. And so that that kind of component, I think, is um, is tough to optimize when, you know, the reality is just age catches up with with pretty much everybody. Um, as a quick note on two, I have Houston here just based off. Oh, of, yeah, I have uh, them in tier three as well. Yeah. So I, I just I just feel like, uh <laughs> You know, th- what's their problem? It's like, well, okay, what what's the pro- why have they fallen off? And and the key is like one teams have figured out like Shingun's on the scouting report now, and you're seeing that a lot. And he's worn out, and he's tired. And then um, Tari Eason got hurt, and that's decimated their bench defensive lineups. When I really think he's going to be a DPOY candidate here for the next couple of years. And then the final thing is just 
uh, I can't blame them for the fact that their primary offensive pillar, the number two pick in the draft, can't shoot. And so, and and not only that, but they have no backup point guard. Like yeah. their their creation, their creation when Fred Van Vliet is not on the floor, and yeah. some of this goes on Jalen Green as well. Like they just they don't have that player and what's exciting is first of all it maybe maybe could end up being a men thompson but they still have the resources to like figure that thing out it's it's it feels like a big problem it's actually a relatively small problem as long as van vliet doesn't miss like 60 games in a year but but that's why i have them tier three i considered putting them tier two and like the other thing i'm I'm getting a little bit shakier at times on Shingun's defense. He's good at some things, but he's also a little bit worse as a rim protector, like when I watched the Rockets than I had thought that he was. But when you have great positional size overall, and you have like, you know, point of attack defense with Van Vliet and the everything else, like the the combination of talent plus I think Ime Odoka, even if they're even if it's overstated by some ridiculous opponent shooting luck, is still their defense is is legit and I think well structured. Yeah, for me, a lot of it is. I know this is very early on with Shengun. After his rookie season, I was like, you know what? He's actually better defensively than you might think. And people were like, you're insane. And I was like, no, like you have to understand. And I had the benefit. This is like influenced by my experience of covering Jokic where they would talk to Jokic and they were like, well, how do you want to play? And he was like, I want to play up. He's like, I don't like – he's like, when I backpedal, I don't know if I should you know, reach up forward and contest and then I wind up being out of position for the weak side lob. It was really def- difficult. So that now like they just hedge. That's what they do because he's better at point of attack because he's quick. He's not fast. He's quick. He's not He's not a leaper. He's quick. And Shengun's much the same way where – if you put Shangun in an aggressive position where his job is to attack, he's much better. If you ask him to play drop coverage because you need to because your guards are tired, exhausted, etc., or you're sh- short-handed and small, that's where I think he runs into a lot of trouble. And he can get better at those things over time, but I think that's like a large part of this component. Um, my tier three has a bunch of teams that are just kind of in the middle, and it's yeah. Orlando, Toronto, Charlotte. The Cavaliers is the only uh, one of the teams that's good here that I think is just meh. The Clippers, the Pelicans, the Lakers, and then I move the Jazz here after our conversation earlier. Mine, my tier four is similar to your tier three, and the way I described it is one end of the four, not the other. And so mm-hmm. it's basically like the roster is constructed or the coaching staff, they've done a really good job. And like, so for me, the, the quintessential team here is the Orlando Magic, where yeah. like, the Magic defense, it all fits together so gorgeously where they force a ton of turnovers, they have good rim protection, all all that stuff works. And then I've, I've been working on for the 1560, like Franz Wagner is taking two pull-up threes per game and shooting below 30% on them. Franz Wagner should not have to do that. They should be able to have players that can that can fulfill that responsibility, that can get those things. And I'm not saying like take the ball out of Franz Wagner's hands. I'm just saying he shouldn't take that many pull-up threes because that's not something he's good at. And... If it honestly with the magic, what's so intense is that I genuinely think they could move from tier four to tier two, probably not tier one, with one player. I'm not saying who that one player is because I'm not quite sure I know, but a offensive initiator, even who sacrifices some defense, I think they can handle that, especially now with Jalen Suggs being a viable offensive player. So they can do it. They just haven't done it just yet. And so for me, the Magic are quintessential. I'll go through the rest of the list, though. The Kings, obviously offense, not defense. The Clippers, it's a little bit of both, but I just thought they were. this was about the appropriate level. It's where you had them as well. 
the Raptors, they've kind of med- they've meshed this a little bit differently. Like now, I think their fit is a little bit a little bit better on offense and a little bit worse on defense based on moves. Not that I disagreed with them at all. The Suns I have here, I mean, we're still figuring out when the world the rest of the roster is. And I have the Cavs here too. And Cleveland, one of the most successful teams to be down this far. And a part of that is... I mean, obviously their defense is is really good, but we saw this a little bit in that stretch where Mobley and Garland were out at the same time, which is the Cavs are obviously a very good team when their four players, their four best players are available and playing together and, you know, being able to fill the rotation with those four guys. There's also a part of it for me that is like, well, you know, like, I don't know that Evan Mobley is put in a position to succeed offensively based on how this works. And I think sometimes like, there is a distinct possibility that Evan Mobley just, you know, like he isn't Bam Adebayo. Like he, he isn't Bam Adebayo on offense and that's fine. But I think that there are times where both Gar- where like all four of these guys, like, I mean, we saw how Jared Allen got accentuated offensively when Evan Mobley wasn't available. Like there is this idea where all four players play well together, but maybe you could take any two or three of them and you could do something different. It's like they have two teams and both teams are good but when you try and mesh them together you're just kind of like oh this is clunky where when they were out and it was like we're just gonna run high pick and roll with jared allen and donovan and donovan mitchell with shooters it was ungodly like that was the best stretch of their season and i understand the perspective of yeah but like okay you have these other guys you need to be better like star power wins in the playoffs i get that it's this is what is is really i think if i were in the cleveland front office i'd be so frustrated that you just can't get donovan to just commit because I honestly would be like, I, I think we can move Darius and get him in a position where he gets to be a max guy somewhere else. Like, imagine what Orlando would offer for Darius Garland. Yeah, he, like, he's he's a great example of that that extra guy that they could add. I mean, people talk about Trey Young a lot, and yeah. some have brought up Dejounte. I don't love Dejounte in that role, but Darius Garland, or I mean, Nate's brought up Simons. Like, yeah, but Garland, yeah. I mean, if you if they could make it work, sure. And and it, and they would have to give up like a lot that would help out the Cavs. Likewise, I think if you know if Mitchell leaves, then you probably trade Allen and then you rebuild with Garland and Mobley. And I think that that works. It'll take some time, and you got to figure out maybe a third guy, a third component, another wing. To but come you'll in. probably get that in the Mitchell trade, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And so you have this this real p- potential. But they're kind of stuck in the middle. And then I'm I'm just like all torn up inside about J.B. Bickerstaff because that first round series was so awful. It was like <laughs> it was I really so bad. cannot stress to you as a better how bad it is that you lose to Tom Thibodeau as a favorite. Like that should never happen in a playoff series. And they got outworked so badly. And it was his first time and maybe it'll be better this time and like all these types of things. But then like I also look at like they had had Garland and Mobley out for months and are the two seed and have the number two defense and are so good and it's just like i don't know what to do with bickerstaff and it may just be as simple as like he's like missoula with less talent where it's like yeah no the principles are really good but he can't problem solve maybe that's it but boy i have a really hard time trying to figure out are they maximizing are they not maximizing are they optimizing are they not like i don't know what to do with them and so i just kind of come out with like well do i think that they are are a sneaky title contender no okay with this kind of raw with this kind of salary then that's probably they're not optimized the clippers i have here but basically built off of the fact of um ironically it it's that i think i just think tyloo gets in his head too much he gets too cute 
Oof. I the their defensive stuff during the fourth quarter of that Lakers game was driving yeah. me up a wall. Yeah. And the other element of it for me that has the Clippers lower is they're kind of like it they're they don't really have the right combinations some of the time where it's like James Harden and Ivica Zubats have great offensive chemistry together, and Zubats is a very good defender. He's not, like, one of the five best in the league, but he, he's very good. However, we've seen over the years, even if he's, you know, slower now and everything else, like, Harden, Harden doesn't work well in the defensive schemes to me that Zubats works well in. And what bothers me about the Clippers, and we're seeing a little bit more P.J. Tucker now, is, like, I continue to struggle with, as great as their talent is, like, what is their, not only what is their, like, killer lineup, but what is their break glass case of emergency and why? And their talent is super good, and they can they can do it in a lot of different ways. Like, they, you know, it's it's a challenge. Yeah, um, and for me, I'm just, I'm always kind of worried that he's going to go to these four-guard lineups, you know, and they've, they've built the roster to, to prevent that from happening, and he still finds ways to go small. And I do think that, to an extent, Lou is stuck in 2016, which there was that period from 2015 to really 2021, maybe 2020, where it was like, all you got to do is go small and you win. That's what you got to do. Every series, every series, if you go small, you first team to go small wins. And he does that too often where I'm like, League's different now, man. Like you can't be doing like, especially if they try that versus the Nuggets in a two, three, one, four, or three, six matchup. It's gonna be, it's gonna go badly. So they've got to be really careful, I think, with, uh, with those kind of components. And yeah, like I do all. And on top of it, also is I still, I think there's a leadership vacuum. Kawhi's never gonna be the guy to set the tone and be the leader. James Harden's not gonna be that guy. So it falls on PG, and it's hard to do it when it's the third best guy on the team. Even though sometimes I think PG's maybe the best guy on the team, but it cre- I don't think any of them would agree with that. And so I think it creates a little bit of a, a leadership vacuum there, which I think causes some tension as well internally. Um, the Pelicans. This is I'll just put this like real simply. I, I like Brandon Ingram without Zion Williamson when they have shooters and wings and a pick and roll big. I like the minutes with Zion Williamson with four shooters. I think those lineups are great. They like the Cavaliers. They have two different teams and the one that they've wind up with together with all of them. I don't like nearly as much. And that's despite the fact that I think Brandon Ingram's having his best playmaking season of his career. I think he's really worked hard to try and develop chemistry with Zion. I think that they have so much weaponry and so much talent. I think this team is so should be so dangerous, but I also think that that the inherent nature of how do like they are a non-optimized team and I also I might drop them to 4 and the reason for that is I just can't get to a point where I'm like I, there is no combination of players where Ingram and Zion are on the floor where it feels optimized to me I have them tier 6 of 6 and it's for largely this reason where the overall talent level for for the Pelicans is incredibly high like they they have a lot of good players they can do an entire rotation even with guys hurt where every single player is a viable NBA yep. contributor. Yep. But they cannot do it in a way where every player is a contributor who makes sense with the other players that are around. Some of that is even just basically like, how is the offense going to flow? How are how are these players going to get into their shots? How can you, and you brought this up with Ingram being a better passer this year, I wholeheartedly agree, of like, well, who's he going to pass to? And what are these? So like, they have good shooters. And it's like, well, and then what's CJ McCollum going to do? And he's actually been a ridiculous uh, pull-up shooter this year. But it's like, are you really going to run your offense? through that like when when are you going to do that and then 
the limitations of their centers. I'm disappointed by Larry Nance just taking seems like a, a few steps back and he's he's had health issues and everything else. Also, you know, players when they get older, like this is a real challenge for them. And so I think the Pelicans, they have supplanted the Raptors in part because thank you, Masai Ujiri, for trading some of your dudes as the team that I'm the most obsessed with as like, I like everyone on their team. I just don't like them on the same team. Yeah, that's a perfect and, way of playing it. And, yep. and and it's and it's not just the starters. It's not just and I've been, I've I've grown. I've I've warmed to Brandon Ingram overall. So like it's not just like oh I think Brandon Ingram's bad relative to his standing or anything like that. It's just that there there aren't there aren't ways to do it. I mean the the problem that there isn't a kind of like traditional ball handler at all on this entire team. Like, and I know they intended for at, at one point years ago for that to be Kyra Lewis and like CJ does things differently. Zion does things differently, but like not to have that as an option, not. And, and like they have, you know, like Herb Jones, you know, Herb Jones can fill some of the, some of these spots. Like he's a good enough shooter that if you could do it that way, but when you're playing, Herb and Z- and Zion and a typically like limited shooting center, mostly in terms of attempts rather than success. Like things can get a little bit dicey, and again, they're often playing like good players who aren't reliable shooters in their spot. So yeah, they that that is that I. I I probably ranted on the same general theme for a little bit too long, but that's the concept. Where did you have Phoenix? I have them in my tier four. So one end of the four, not the other. I think that, I mean, their offense is ridiculous. And and I mean, especially when you consider how much Beal has missed, like that they can make all this work. Grayson Allen is having a very good season overall. They asked Kevin Durant to do so much defensively. He's done relatively well. I, I wouldn't say as well as he did last year for the Nets before the trade, but they just, uh, I just... Again, I don't think that they can quite they can quite put it together on that end, at least right now. And maybe their offense can go so well that it won't matter as much, and so they can get a series or two. I don't think they're going to win the West personally, um, yeah. but I that's kind of where I ended up. So tier four of six. Yeah, I've got them uh, four of five. Okay, I, I'm broadly okay with that. Yeah, a lot of it for me is just I look at them and I just go. <sighs> You know, Beal was the best option available to them from their from because of their uh, salary constraints. And I get that. I honestly think like they should have looked at flipping him at the deadline to be like, hey, he's back healthy. Let's try and flip him. They just they need they didn't need this third star. I really don't think that they did. And I honestly think that their success this season is kind of proof of it where it's like, well, why have they been so successful? And it's like, well, Kevin Durant's great. And Devin Booker's awesome. OK, why else? Grayson Allen and Yusuf Nurkic have been great. Kind of proving, like, you didn't need Bradley Beal. You needed dudes. You needed a bunch of dudes that could play together, that could build some continuity and some chemistry, that have roles and identities, that aren't just, like, three guys trying to make it work because this is, like, the worst version possible of the 2011 Heat team. It's, like, the the very, very, very discount Costco version of this. Well, it, And it's, it's also a reminder that as well as we can think at the outset that a team does with minimum contracts first of all most of them don't work out because players are usually on minimums for a reason even if they took a discount and because 
it's just it's hard to fill actual rotation or even starting roles with players like that. It, it's possible, and like we've seen a few teams nail those decisions, but there have been a few now. There was one with the Lakers too, if memory serves. I think that was twenty one, maybe maybe it was the twenty twenty after they won the title, where it's like, oh, they did a really good job, you know, kind of doing these moves on the margins, and like none of them worked. And so there have been a few of those where I think it was a Warrior season like that too, where you have to build more of your team with minimums, and it's just so hard to do successfully. Yeah. Uh, this tier four, the rest of them, I have Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Phoenix, Memphis. Uh, and I just moved the Pelicans down based on our conversation. So mm-hmm. Atlanta, I think, is pretty obvious where um, – t- to be honest with you, I don't even know, Danny. Like they moved John Collins. They finally did that move. And they bring over DeJounte and they're playing Okongu more and they have wings – and they have depth, and they have some versatility, and it's just they're still, still so underperforming. And, like, part of me just kind of wonders if, if at the core of this is just, like, the Trey Young thing does not work here, which is why there's a lot of conversations about him maybe being a spur of the summer. Um, and, and so, and, yeah. I mean, one of the stat that I, I pulled this morning for an unrelated purpose, the Hawks are currently dead last in opponent location effective field goal percentage, so you could think of that as defensive effective field goal percentage location, and they're last in action. Like that that's a bad combination where you're giving up shots where teams don't want where where teams want to take shots and you're not stopping them. So it's not like you're even Jedi mind tricking or anything like that. They give up a ton of corner threes, they give up a ton around the rim. They've been a terrible transition defense this year. And all of those things are bad. Like there are a lot of players on the Hawks that I either like or am good with, but the combinations don't always work too well. I'm also I'm I'm getting a little bit more wary of Anyeko Kongwu like defensively. Like I think the yeah. the he's a little bit small and he may be one of those like the theory and some of the flashes are better than the possession by possession stuff. I'm getting more 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 on that train. And then they, you know, they have these forwards, some of whom have done, you know, like Jalen Johnson's been very good this year. I like him a lot. But then like Sadiq Bay, you know, like he he has he you know, his best year was probably his rookie year. That's always a little bit of a concern. And then DeAndre Hunter is fine. And if we could if we could pretend that DeAndre Hunter the player and DeAndre Hunter the contract weren't the same, it would be we could have probably a more healthy conversation about him. Yeah. But but then it's like, and I mean, it's so weird that all this stuff is happening when Bogdanovich is having a pretty good year when he's been, and he's been available most of the year. And then DeJounte is doing much better, including some things specifically in the areas where he struggled last year. And yet it still is just absolutely not working. I have a great betting stat that sums up the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks are currently the worst against the spread team in the entire time that we have data available, which goes back to 2003. So it's only 21 years, but they are currently at 32% against the spread, a percentage point behind the 2003 Orlando Magic. They are 19 and 40 against the spread. It is incredible wow. how much – like there is no better they underperform expectation stat than that. It's so. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is that is wild. Um, so you your your tier four and my tier five are largely the same. My tier six, I already brought up that the Pelicans are here. I have San Antonio here still, even yep. though it's fair to argue that as Pop has changed the rotation around, it, things have gotten better, better. Yeah. now that Wembenyama is playing more at the five. Now that Trey Jones is actually playing, which is nice, but they still are playing. You know. 
typically a non-shooter at the four. They still have some offensive flow problems. There's you know, Wembenyama is still taking way too many shots. And then they have all of these limitations when Wembenyama is not on the floor. And so that's some of that's fit. Some of that's a bunch of other things. So I, I think the Spurs are pretty comfortably here. I cracked up when I saw the Wizards because I'm like, who even are their star players? Like, yeah. how are we going to do this? But when you consider that, whatever you're classifying it, they're, you know, like we want to say, like, I kind of just use Kuzma is they don't have a defensive foundation anymore. They traded Daniel Gafford. Not I, I approve. I, I, I thought they did a good job in the trade. But, you know, this is the New York term is the consequence there. So, like, they don't have a defensive foundation without him and without DeLon Wright. And Kyle Kuzma, to me, is better situated as a lower as a smaller part in a successful offense. And he has to be the biggest part because who the hell else is it going to be? I think the best way to do this is no one's reputation has been raised. No one's. Maybe I mean, and, and some of them have been. I mean, I, I just picked Jordan Poole as having the worst contract in the league. Now, most of that is not unselled in Keith. Most of it is Jordan Poole just being terrible this year. But yeah. it's it's a fair point. I mean, maybe the only, for me, the only guy, there are two. And Bilal Koulibaly, who I just hadn't watched any film of, and I think like, the dude can play, even if it's going to yeah, take a little bit of time. And then Denny Avdia, where mm-hmm. Avdia, is doing, he has a little bit more of a role with the offense. I think he's done well, capable defensive player. But when that's what you're talking about is the players whose stock has gone up and everyone else is either neutral or down, it's trouble. Like I have Detroit in a, in a tier higher than them. And my bottom tier is Wizards, Spurs, and, and Portland. Um, in part because the Wizards and, and the Wizards and, and Blazers are in the same boat. Like mm-hmm. San Antonio's here because you have so much, you have this incredible talent, and you haven't done enough to fill in around him, including like giving guys money who clearly aren't on the level of being good enough to play with him. Uh, and then the Wizards and Blazers here are here because at least like with Detroit, I'm like I get like they have foundations, I get what they're trying to do. Like I don't know where you start with any of these guys. Like I don't know where you start with any of them. And with um. You know, with the Wizards, uh, I, I think you're right on those two guys that they're uh, that they've had good seasons. But it's just like, man, uh, I don't know even where you begin. Like, I don't know. And what's really crazy here is I think when Detroit was on the 28 game losing streak, I was like, guys, the season's long. They're not going to be this bad forever. And they're not like they've turned into like they're a bad team. They're a really bad, really, really, really bad team. But like the Wizards started bad and got worse. So much worse. And that's impressive um, in many ways. And so, like, they are the most lost franchise of any of them, at least with the Blazers. It's like, okay, look, Scoot had a miserable year, long way to go, showed some flashes. Shaden has some bounce. And Simons continues to put up numbers. I'm not a Simons guy, but, like, he continues to put up numbers. Maybe you put him on a different team and he looks entirely different. Um, And you can get return on that. So, like... The Blazers are definitely like a level above here. Like the Wizards honestly need to be in their own tier based <laughs> off of all this. And it's just like, I don't know. I, the biggest thing is I don't even know where, how you fix it. Like not even like a, a long-term fix, right? Like that's a much broader question. I'm just talking about like, how do you get them to where it's like, okay, yeah, like they're a bad team. They're built around a, ba- a guy that's probably not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know how you get to that level. Like that's how, how lost the Wizards I mean, are. Which is the expectation to me is that the only players who could be on the next great Wizards team who are currently on it are cool. Bali and Avdia. I think yeah. everyone else has to be gone. And it's gonna take years. They're yeah. even if they even if they got the number one pick in the draft in one of the next two years and that player became the like I'm not gonna say the next num like the next like number one player in the league, because generally they lift all boats, but like they just they need everything. Like this is the the you know like so an NBA rotation like is forty eight minutes times five positions, so it's two hundred and forty minutes. Off the cuff, the current Wizards probably need to overhaul like 180 of those minutes. 
over the next couple of years. That's hard. And so we'll we'll see where that goes. I actually do have the Pistons down this low because of my 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 concerns about their spacing, but they are a better team than their record. Like they've looked a little bit better, but they just they have the the combination of bigs that they have and and thankfully there's no Killian Hayes in this rotation anymore. But I still like my one of my big concerns with them is that I'm not sure Jaden Ivey is good enough to even though I, the theory of him made sense I'm not sure that he'll be good enough to be the running buddy for Cade even if the theory of it is sound so that kind of thing like well who are who are going to be those guys I like Asar but I don't know that Asar is going to be that player so it's like it's it's possible and also I I don't think that Monty Williams has done a particularly great job coaching this team. No, I don't think he has either. I don't think he can say that they're optimized in any sort of any sort of like meaningful way. It's more just a matter of like they show more flashes of okay, like this can be an NBA team sometimes. Uh, sure. And the Wizards seem very very far away away from that. Um, I want to make one more note of my tier four, which is Memphis, which goes back to what I talked about earlier, which is if, if Stephen Adams goes out and your entire season is wrecked, he went. Like that will get lost. And there's a lot of times when this happens where there'll be something that occurs and then something much more that makes a lot more headlines happens and everyone circles that other thing. And I'm just like, Mm. they were already sunk before Ja came back. Totally. They were already like, maybe Ja comes back and they were able to claw their way out of it. Or or maybe they, they changed their trade deadline approach. But like the, they, they trusted in growth from the, the bench, which now is just, it's a disaster zone of nothing but unreclaimable projects and then the 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 bigs and they're gonna have to reconfigure that this summer again like they're gonna have to even when they get brandon clark back they're gonna have to figure that out again and so and and uh, that's why the stephen adams trade for me was so bewildering is like they they moved from okay this was a lost year but i see how you get back to what in the world are you doing now i think they have designs on on a younger guy is what i think i think they do too but i don't think they're gonna succeed (laughs) me neither so we'll see see what they do this has been awesome we went longer than usual because i think you and i both really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much for doing it thanks for having me thanks again to matt moore for taking the time to come on you can read his excellent work at the action network you can also listen to him on locked on nuggets and locked on nba does such great work and of course i truly love having him on the tiers pod If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is extremely appreciated because Real Jam Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week. And if there's a podcast player that you want us in that we're not in, please let me know and I will pass that on the chain. Not something I can fix, but something I know people who can fix. can also help other people find the show. That is leaving a rating or review in the podcast player you're choosing. Word of mouth, social media, whatever you want to do. Really do appreciate that. Help other people find the show. And then the single most important thing for Real GM Radio or any other podcast that has it is to check out our sponsors. And for this one especially, because it is a new sponsor, and that is PrizePix. Download the PrizePix app today and use the code CLNS for a first deposit match up to $100, which is really great. Love having them on board. You can also check out my other work. Dunked on, dunked on Prime are going strong. Nate and I are getting into position rankings now that the trade deadline and all-star break are over. So some fruitful discussions there. Also, sometimes some of our bigger disagreements, which is always fun. And we are continuing the NBA strategy stream. The next one of those is actually on Monday, Monday, March 4th. We are doing Bulls Kings, which is, I believe, at 9 Central, 7 Pacific. Should be a fun one. And then you could check out my written work at The Athletic, 
have done some team by team cap space stuff. I have a free agency piece that I'm working on now that isn't yet submitted. So that should be out this week if I'm on my business and get get it submitted in time. It's mostly on me, of course, at this point. So if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, DanielRueNBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I am not the greatest at replying, but I tell you that out front. I do read everything, though, that is extremely important to me. That's why I call it feedback. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.